0: And some time of silent meditation to so reflect on the kindness we've received from others And think how those sentient beings who have been so kind have no freedom That they're completely controlled by afflictions and karma Mm -hmm. So that even though they want happiness They continue to create the cause of suffering And experience the resultant suffering within cyclic existence and without their knowing and practicing the Dharma there's no end to that insight and yet they've been extraordinarily kind to us So how can we just turn, just turn our back on their situation And let them continue Being under the influence of afflictions and karma It doesn't seem right to do that And yet, while we ourselves are under the influence of afflictions and karma, what we can do to be of benefit to them is really rather limited. And so it's imperative that we are able to eliminate our own afflictions and karma. Gain the realizations of the path Because then in that way The benefit we give will be really meaningful Really significant And so generate that aspiration for full enlightenment For the benefit of all beings Sometimes it it may seem, Mm -hmm. when we're generating bodhicitta again and again and again, like, well, I know the words, but I don't really have any heartfelt feeling for this. But the thing is, that that's how we get a heartfelt feeling, is by training the mind, by doing this over and over and over again, by familiarizing our, our mind with this way of thinking. That's how the heartfelt feeling comes. Okay, so we have we do longer meditations where we really explore these feelings the you know, the step by step way to cultivate the mind. We explore those in depth. But we also do these focus concentration things of generating bodhicitta again and again, really to familiarize our mind with it. Yeah like everything in life practice okay. and sometimes when we get a sense of how we ourselves are um, under the influence of uh, afflictions and karma how we are so limited by the limitations of our own mind and then when we think that this is the situation of all others Sometimes the whole thing just seems like unbearable, you know. And so that's why it's so good that we have the option of turning to the Buddha-Dharma Sangha for guidance. And we have the teachings on how to generate bodhicitta ourselves. So we see the tragedy of cyclic existence. And we don't just throw up our hands and wail... It's unfair. Okay, but we gather together our inner resources and we do what we can, progressively, step by step, to remedy the situation. Okay. Um. Okay. And I checked that sutra because uh, you wanted to know what happened to the monk. Who uh, had, um, you know, was going around saying the Buddha's a fake because he doesn't do uh, magic powers. So the sutra only says at the beginning of it that he had left the order and become a non Buddhist. It doesn't have him at all at the end of the sutra. So I don't know what happened to him. It doesn't sound like he, you know, kind of saw his wrong ways and did something about them and then uh, the second thing you would asked about one of the stories from the inmates about how they practiced uh, in a difficult situation in prison so I, I had this one story that uh, one uh, man James sent to me uh, he just wrote this in a, a letter and I asked him if I could um uh, Put it in a book, and he said, "Yes." Uh, he's James. Is how old is James? I would say early thirties. No, maybe late twenties. Late twenties, early thirties, something like that. Um, he can. Com- he killed somebody when he was sixteen, and he did so at the time. Um, and actually, a number of the guys I write to are in for long sentences for crimes that they did when they were juveniles because the prison justice, prison, I don't know, justice system, prison, the the, uh, justice, injustice system had decided to change the way that they dealt with juveniles. They thought that if they made the sentences longer, it would deter more young kids from acting out. Of course We've all been young kids And when your mind gets uncontrolled Do you think Oh I'm going to face a prison sentence No Not even adults think that You know When the mind is uncontrolled It is flat out uncontrolled Okay You're not thinking correctly So anyway They started sentencing people The juveniles To really long sentences so he's one. He, he did this crime at age 16. He has life imprisonment with no possibility of parole. And he was a first-time offender. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, sometimes when I meet te- teenagers who are screwing around... And they say, well, you know, I'm not doing anything bad enough to get involved with the police. With well, I say, that doesn't matter. Just sometimes being the wrong place at the wrong time, the way they're sentencing people, it can be really dangerous. Okay. In any case, um, he's made a lot of changes in his life since he went in. Um, I I think they may have put him directly in a, an adult prison. I'm not sure. But that's really tough on the juveniles to go into the adult prison because they're often picked on and exploited. Um, anyway, I have his this one little vignette that he wrote here about something that happened. So he said, Of all the practices I've ever tried, uh, taking and giving, the Len meditation has had the most profound effects in my life. In particular, one of the emotions I've had the most trouble with is fear. A lot of it is conditioned fear. I've lived my whole life in one kind of dangerous situation or another. Fear is one of those emotions that can quickly move me from acting wisely to acting irrationally. Taking and giving has helped me uh, more than anything else in those situations where I feel intense fear. Okay, so he says, I'm an inmate. I read the, the story for the book. I'm an inmate in prison for life without parole due to a crime I committed when I was 16. So the following story occurred in prison. Joe, another inmate who was a friend of mine, was being sex, sexually exploited. Now, if you know anything about sexual exploitation in prison, it can get really ugly, because um, <clears throat> usually one guy uh, is very manipulative and uh, says that he will protect the other one for if he is his sexual partner. And then of course, if the other one tries to leave, the big guy gets really jealous and upset. And it can be uh, quite a bad situation. Anyway, so James's friend Joe was in this kind of situation. One day we were walking, discussing his options of how to make it stop, even though Joe wasn't sure he would make it stop at that point. But as we walked and talked, he finally came to the point where he was just going to tell the guy who was exploiting him that he had had enough and then walk off. Of course, if you have dealt with prisons long enough, you know that such a confrontation usually doesn't end well. As we were walking, Joe's friend came out to holler at him. Joe did just what he said he was going to do. He went up to the guy and said, it's done, it's finished. Um, And his friend quickly figured out that I was at at fault for Joe's sudden courage. And now his friend wanted to holler at me. I knew what that meant and it wasn't good. I did my best not to respond according to my first reaction which was to strike first. Instead, the whole time I walked towards the guy, instead, the whole time I walked towards the guy, I practiced taking and giving, taking from him his desire and greed, giving him what little virtue I had created in my Dharma practice. While doing this, I recited the Tara Mantra. By the time I got over to the guy, I was calm, not feeling fight or flight. Of course, the exchange between us was heated. He threatened me in various ways, wanted me to pay him money for taking his boy and all of that. Joe went inside and told the officer that his friend was out of bounds. The guy went to the hole, in other words, to disciplinary segregation, and was eventually transferred to another prison. I never had to resort to violence and never even felt moved to that level of fear in this situation, beyond the initial feeling that led me to practice taking and giving. In short, taking and giving helped me to react from a more spacious place, a place where I had options other than confrontation and aggression. In the end, it worked out well. Joe Joe isn't getting exploited anymore. The guy was transferring, and now Joe is in a much safer camp, working on his inner issues that led him to that situation in the first place, which was that he was abused as a child and quickly identified himself in that victim row. So James thought quickly you know I mean he was a a situation right in his face and he had to think quickly about what practice to do you know he knew he had to keep his mind calm because he said his first reaction would be to strike first of course you know he knows where that gets him um, and so he, you know, he thought quickly and did the taking and giving meditation and the Tara mantra, and in that way kept himself balanced. Yeah, he had the exchange with the other guy, but it didn't turn out to be violent, which was good for both of them. Well, for all three of them, actually. Yeah. So this is a, a kind of example of how to practice. So the next time you feel far sorry for yourself for having problems, <laughs> you know, think of some of the things that these guys go through. Okay. Okay. Show forty-eight. Even when the hordes of Mara's army shower their frightful weapons upon one, the power of the mighty armor of compassion makes them crumble into a mist of flowers. Okay? So it talks about the hordes of Mara's army. Mara is kind of a mythical figure, although they say that there is such a being as Mara. He's born in the Deva excuse me in the Deva realm. Um uh, but Mara in the scriptures is always portrayed as the one who tries to intervene and pre- um, prevent somebody from doing Dharma practice. Okay, so Mara's always throwing the wrench in, seeing if he can distract somebody, get them screwed up or whatever. So um, this particular verse, when it talks about the hordes of Mara's army uh, showering their frightful weapons, Okay. Uh, as the story goes of the Buddhist enlightenment, when he sat down under the Bodhi tree in the first uh, watch of the night, all of his, uh, you know, afflictions appeared in this symbolic form of Mara creating interferences. So one of the interferences, Mara came was to come out with his hordes of uh, <laughs> uh, NRA followers, all with their <laughs> weapons uh, to attack the Buddha. Okay? So what this, of course, indicates is dealing with our own anger. Yeah. But it's explained in the sense of having visions of all these people coming and harming him hordes of armies and so on, attacking the Buddha. Um, And so the Buddha, instead of uh, dealing with this with fear, instead of (laughs) self-medicating by breaking his meditation session and going to have a drink and smoke a joint, he didn't do any of that. Okay, He stayed there on his cushion. And um, the power of the mighty armor of compassion made all the armies crumble into a mist of flowers. And so the Buddha greeted Mara's uh, horde of vicious-looking uh, warriors with compassion. And in doing so, they all their weapons transformed into flowers, and all these flowers showered down on him. Okay? So it's illustrating the power of compassion okay I think James's story did the same thing yeah illustrating the power of compassion in a tight situation you told me a story once about um, when some of the non-Buddhist guys were making trouble, that the Buddhist group was meeting. Oh yeah. 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 yeah tell that story, because <laughs> I think it's a very good example of again how to deal with, um, you know, angry people and people who are trying to cause interference. So at
1: every Heights, at the Religious Activity Center, which must be there and you walk right in the front door on your right side. There's this long room that has windows. I don't know exactly what it's intended for, but some kind of meeting room where you're able to be viewed. So I guess maybe the <coughs> chaplain there can keep an eye on the people who are in there or something. But the main meeting room for like religious groups is in the back, and it's, it's more private. And you know, you have know, your Person, guest, who's visiting, and meeting the group, and whatnot. But for some reason, they accidentally misscheduled the Buddhist group, and there wasn't room for them in the back room, so they put them, all of us, in the side room. And so we're all doing our practices while everybody else is sitting in the main room, staring at us, <laughs> kind of like. Or, you know, and most of them are all very fundamental Christian, and, and there's kind of like there's this tendency in prison for people to um, kind of convert to religion, very extreme sort of fundamentalist religion and then to, when they get out, they really just to stop all of it. But anyway, while they're in there, they, they tend to be very kind of like, you know, my religion's right, and to be really critical of all other religions. So Buddhism, of course, out people like. So one time we were sitting in that room because we were put in there and doing our practices and probably prostration and in, you know we had an altar set up or something so people were really to just, it, it, well what happened was there was a few, I think there were Mexican guys who were you know had a Bible, each of them had a Bible in their hand and they had their hand on the window. <laughs> And they were, like, saving us, basically. I don't know what they were doing. I don't know if you're well, but They were doing something through the window, through, like, half of the practice. They were standing there, like, literally, like, in, I'm sitting here. Then they would be, like, right here behind me with a hand, you know. And it was quite distracting, I think, for most people. And then after the practice ended, we all kind of got up. And I decided to go out there and talk to them again. And they kind of, they, they, you know, they didn't speak really good English, but they were kind of like, you know, um, we're praying for you, we're praying for you. And I'm just told thank you, you know, we're praying for you
0: also.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, but, but you invited them into the room. Oh, yeah,
1: I'm sure. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know?
0: That although they were in some way being. Harassing him oh, like. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you invited them into the room. You told me, mm-hmm. yeah. They declined.
1: Yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't I don't remember, exactly, I don't remember who, of those people joining our group. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> I think that one stuck out of my mind. This is kind of like that disciple who was lost in your memory of what he did. Yeah. yeah. So just you
0: know, there's many creative ways to deal with confrontive situations besides being confronted back. Yeah, that's the point, and it's compassion. You know, in the inst- instance here, you know, with the Buddha, and I think also, you know, you're just kind of going out and talking to them and saying hi, and we're praying for you. Um, you know, just it it it. Compassion can can shatter the tightness in a situation.
1: Okay. And the other Buddhists in the group were very unhappy <laughs> about being put in that room in general. I remember that. Just, <clears throat> they call it the fishbowl, as you kind of like <laughs> I, I'm doing. But um, I remember everybody's very unhappy and that's somebody we decided to go there and talk to them not to carry this sort of negative attitude, which is kind of
0: Thing, what they were wanting mm-hmm. they to kind of generalize, mm-hmm. and so it's just like, no, just to it. Yeah. Mhm. Okay. Then verse um, forty-nine: An arm firmly, firmly embraces the vast number of beings, feeling that it cannot part from them. That is you, the long arm of compassion. Mm-hmm. So before the, you know, uh, the compassionate one was compared to uh, an eye, and then a tongue. Here it's the arm. Okay. So when you think of Chenrezig with a thousand arms, an arm firmly embraces the vast number of sentient beings. Okay. So is reaching out with those thousand arms, embracing all sentient beings. Yeah. Very different than us. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So completely open, reaching out to sentient beings. Yeah. Um, feeling that it cannot part from them. So they often talk about um, tenrezi being attached to sentient beings.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: So we're going to say attached. Attachment is, you know, an affliction. It's to be eliminated. What do you mean? A sentient being is, uh, Genresi is attached to sentient beings and he can't bear to part with, to part from them. Okay? They use the same word attached, in Tibetan it's the same word that they use, you know, that translates as attached, for both the, the thing of affliction and to mean, um, attached in the sense that you feel very, very close to somebody. Okay. So just as our English word attachment can have different connotations in different situations, so can the Tibetan word. So they say that Chenrezig is attached to sentient beings by his compassion. Yeah? So that feeling of closeness, that feeling of not wanting to leave and so having trained the mind so much in compassion you know that reaction to sentient beings being so spontaneous then the idea of leaving behind sentient beings who are stuck in samsara and just forgetting about them you know is unbearable to chenrezig attached by the force of compassion to sentient beings okay Due to the long arm of compassion, it's a nice image, isn't it? Yeah, because most of us, when we uh, we realize that we're in samsara and when we're having problems, we kind of want somebody to hug us, don't we? Yeah, to know that somebody's there to kind of help us out of the jam. So this is that that kind of image. So it's not necessarily the Chenrezig is going to fly out of the sky like Superman and land in front of you and help you with your problem, okay? But it's more um, the the way the Buddhas help us is uh, particularly by giving the Dharma teachings, okay? And so when we face a different a difficult situation if in our own mind we do what I call a 911 to the Buddha, then what we do is we remember the various teachings that we've heard over the time, and we think about which teaching do I need to practice at that very moment to deal with the situation that I'm in. And so that is how Chenrezig helps us, is by teaching... And also by acting as an example. You know, you might be in a difficult situation sometime and remember this image of the long arm of compassion embracing sentient beings, and it might help you at some point to figure out what to do in a situation. Okay. They do say that the Buddha can appear in all different kinds of forms. As human beings, even as inanimate beings, as boats and all sorts of different things, according to what sentient beings need, if those sentient beings have the karma to receive that kind of help. Okay? So, if sentient beings have the karma, you know, a manifestation of the Buddha can appear, like I said, even as an inanimate object. That can be a benefit to them at that time, or as uh, some kind of person that can be a benefit. Yeah. Of course, they don't wear name tags saying, <laughs> "I'm an emanation of Resi. I've come here to help you." That's not what happens. Okay, but um, it's interesting when we look at our lives, you know, where help comes from. Sometimes, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it comes from corners that you you wouldn't have anticipated, or Mm -hmm. just different things happen. So, you know, they say we don't know who's a Buddha and who isn't. But in any way, having this feeling that, you know, when we're practicing, we are not alone in a cold um, universe, but that there's many Buddhas and Bodhisattvas who really care for us, and are doing their best to help us. Yeah. If we don't receive their help, it's not because they haven't been trying, it's because we've been busy doing other things. Okay. So they always say that that the um, Buddha's um Trinlay. Trinle is like enlightened activity. They say that the Buddha's enlightened activity is like the sun rays. It just shines everywhere. But if you have a bowl that's upside down, it could be out in the middle of the sun, but there's no light that goes inside. Okay. If the bowl starts to tip, then some light can start to enter. And according to how much it's tipped, more and more light enters. So in the same way when our minds are filled with a lot of negative karma, especially wrong views, you know, then our mind is just like upside down. And the Buddha's enlightening influence can't has a hard time reaching us. You know, because we're fighting it the whole time. Okay, we're looking elsewhere. But as we start to purify and accumulate merit, we're making our own mind more receptive so that we can receive the Buddha's enlightening influence. Okay, verse 50. And what is it that appears as the tool which the Supreme Guide uses to lift all beings out of the intense dangers of the chasm of existence? It is only the hook of compassion. Okay, so here compassion not just an eye and a tongue and an arm. It's a tool. It's a hook. Okay, And they often use that image um, of the Buddha hooking us with compassion. Yeah. So we have to create the ring. Then the Buddha can hook us with the compassion. If we don't have the ring, if we hide the ring, then there might be hooks all around, but what to do? Okay, so um, what is it that appears as the tool which the Supreme Guide, the Supreme Guide means the, the Buddha, uses to lift all beings. Yeah. So the, the tool is compassion. By compassion, the Buddhists reach out to us and guide us and do what they can to teach us according to our own disposition, according to our own tendency. And they try and hook us and lead us out of the intense dangers of the chasm of existence. Here, the chasm of existence refers to uh, cyclic existence, samsara. Okay, and it's a chasm. You know, we fall into the pit of samsara by means of our afflictions and karma. It's very difficult to get out. Yeah. But a Buddha with their very deep compassion, you know, hooks us with their compassion and tries to lead us out by teaching us how to liberate our own mind. Okay. So the Buddha does not save us by us having faith and believing. Yeah. Buddhism is not a religion of, you know, just believe. And have devotion and faith, and you'll be okay. It's not like that. Okay? The Buddha leads us by teaching us, but it's our responsibility to listen, to think, yeah? To really subject the teachings to critical analysis and see if they hold up. It's our responsibility to try out the teachings and see if they work. Yeah? just having faith is not what liberates us and his holiness says this again and again and again okay because i think it's kind of human nature we kind of like having faith in something that's you know in mommy or daddy and then want them to come and protect us and save us you know we kind don't you think isn't there part of our mind that is still somewhat like a little kid and it's like, Mommy, Daddy, I have a problem, come get me, rescue me, you know? But what what Buddhism is about is about well I'll show you how to get out of the difficult situation yourself. Yeah. And actually that's more effective, isn't it? Yeah, because then we develop wisdom and skill on our own part. So that's very much what we have to do. Um, So we have to make ourselves into, you know, um, receptive vessels for the Dharma. We have to make the book so that the Buddha can hook us with compassion. And then we have to do the hard work of, you know, listening to the Dharma, thinking about it, meditating on it, practicing it. Dealing with our unruly mind, you know, and especially dealing with all the obstacles our unruly mind creates, which prevent us from practicing. And our ego mind is so good at creating all sorts of obstacles for practice. You know, we have so many excuses why we can't practice. And so many things that take us away from the Dharma. You know? And the thing is, we really believe that these other things are crucially important. And we really believe that all our doubts are not doubts, but they're true. You know? And we really believe that the objects of attachment, if we only tried a little bit harder this time, they will really make me happy. And we really believe that death is not going to come to us. It happens to other people. Yeah. And if it does happen, long time. I have plenty of time to practice the Dharma. Plenty of time. Yeah. I can enjoy samsara for a little bit. Yeah. There's lots of fun in samsara. (laughs) We oui.
1: <laughs>
0: You get to go up and down and the merry go around of samsara. Being born in all these different realms and meeting all these wonderful people. I forget the fact that they hurt your feelings, but they're wonderful people. And doing all these wonderful things and having all these exciting adventures. And samsara is so much fun. Okay? Right? right? Mm-hmm. So we really have to, you know, practice samsara diligently um, so that we'll have some happiness. Yeah. Okay. And so says the ego-mind, and we salute it and say, Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Right away. And off we go with our samsara. Okay? So... um you know, this is all the stuff we have to deal with in order to practice, isn't it? I mean, practice is dealing with all these things. It isn't that you get rid of those things and then you practice. Practice is dealing with them. Okay? And it's not that you live them all out and then they're satisfied. You know, you propitiate all your attachments and angers and then they kind of leave you. No, it's like the, what we were chanting uh, today, you know, like salt water, like drinking salt water. Yeah. The more we take the objects of attachment, the thirstier we become for them, the more our clinging and craving increase. Okay. So this is what poor Chimresi is up against. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we always complain about people that we try and help and they don't let us help them. Yeah, don't we? We complain about, I was just trying to help you, you know. The subline is, but you're so stubborn. (laughs) Yeah, you won't let me help you. I was just trying to help. Okay, but look at what, what Chinrezzi's up against trying to help us. My goodness. Yeah. We battle all the way to enlightenment. <laughs> not we, but our ego mind, our afflicted mind, our self-centered mind, you know. It's not going to surrender easily. Okay, <clears throat> verse 51. Hence you are everywhere, both in the realm of samsara and nirvana, carrying all embodied creatures from the troubles out of which they have not yet been led to the excellence which they have yet to find. Okay? So here's the power of compassion and what a great one with great compassion and great wisdom does. Hence you are everywhere, both in the realm of samsara and nirvana. So, uh, An enlightened Buddha, their mind is in the state of nirvana, but they appear in the realm of samsara. Whereas we are reborn due to ignorance and afflictions and karma in samsara, Buddhas and the high-level bodhisattvas send out emanations that appear like regular samsaric beings and act like regular samsaric beings. Okay. But they're done. Di- but these emanations um, come due to the compassion, and so they appear in our realm of cyclic existence in order to be a benefit to us. And here's where the image of the lotus comes from, because like a lotus flower, is the roots are in the mud, but it's untainted. So when the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas appear in samsara, yeah, there it's. It's as if they're walking around in the mud of samsara, but they're the lotus flowers, so they're completely untainted by by any of the afflictions or misery of cyclic existence. Okay, So they're carrying all embodied creatures, embodied beings. I think that's very telling, that expression, Mm. an embodied being. Mm. Okay? Yeah, we're embodied beings, aren't we? And we never question being an embodied being. It's all we've ever known, at least this lifetime. Yeah, we have a body, that's the way it is. But we've never really stopped and looked at the nature of this body and asked asked ourselves, how did I wind up with this body? You ever done that? Mm-hmm. Ask yourself, how did I wind up with this body? And do I have to have a body? And what's the nature of this body? Because we look, I mean, what's the nature of this body? From the time it was conceived, it's getting older. So old age is upon us. Mm-hmm. What else does this body do? It gets sick not our favorite thing but the body does it and at the end of the day what does the body do? it dies yeah. meanwhile while we're alive we have to take, spend so much time and energy taking care of this body Yeah, think of how much time how much of your life is dedicated to taking care of this body and then think Of how much of our identity is wrapped up in this body? And what's it going to be like to leave this body behind and leave that identity behind? Okay. And so I think it's good to do this kind of questioning of, you know, do I have you know, in my next life, do I have to have a body? What is it? that makes me take a body that gets old and sick and dies? Because when we look around in cyclic existence, everybody's body is the same. It gets born, ages, falls ill, dies. Do we want to keep on again and again and again, having that situation? If it's not this body, it's another body. Birth, aging, sickness, death. Then again, birth, aging, sickness, death. Now we're going to say, oh, but there's lots of fun in between. And our body gives us lots of pleasure. Well, okay, we get certain amount of pleasure from our body. But the pleasure we get from our body is always related to pain in some way. The pleasure we get from eating is because we were hungry and we had the suffering of (coughs) hunger and then we get the pleasure of eating. Okay? We have the suffering of being exhausted, then we get the pleasure of just collapsing in bed. Mm -hmm. So when we look, what we, you know, so often what we attribute as pleasure. In this body, usually there's some kind of discomfort that precedes it. Okay. And you know, so is it worth it to always have discomfort in order to have physical discomfort in order to have physical pleasure? Is it worth it? Yeah. And does the pleasure ever satisfy? Yeah. We've eaten how many times? <laughs> have we ever been satisfied? Yeah. We have the suffering of thirst. We drink something. Are we ever satisfied long term? Okay So um, Chenresi is reaching out to us embodied beings. You know, who are under the, the sway, under the control, under the power of afflictions and karma. We aren't free yeah. We think we're free, especially Americans. You know I'm free. Are you free from getting old? Can you stop yourself from getting old? Are you free from getting sick? Are we free of death? Are we free from meeting uncooperative people and bad circumstances? Okay, we might be free to have a political meeting and we might be free to go to the shopping center, but are we really free? Are our minds free? Are you free from the torment of of uh, anger? Are we free from the torment of clinging and craving? Yeah. So you know, when we really investigate, we see that you know, cyclic existence, samsara, is called a prison for a very good reason, because those of us living in it, we we aren't really free. We aren't really free. So true freedom is liberation. Yeah. What is liberation? It's the cessation of all the afflictions, all the karma that causes rebirth, the ignorance which underlies all those things. Yeah. So liberation is what, what is real freedom? So so Chenrezig is carrying all embodied creatures from the troubles out of which they have not yet been led to the excellence which they have yet to find. So the excellence of liberation, the excellence of full Buddhahood, we have yet to find those. It's hard even for us to think about them and to conceptualize them, because we're so stuck in our limited view. But with great compassion, Chenrezig is trying to lead us there, out of the prison of cyclic existence. So wouldn't it be nice, from our own side, to be able to do that for others? And wouldn't it be nice... Not to make so many problems for Chenresi by being so obstinate when he's trying to help us. Yeah. That's what I meant by, you know, I mean we really give a lot of headaches to the (laughs) Buddhism bodies, I think. You know? All they want us to do is create the cause of happiness. I mean, because they've so much trained their mind that the happiness of others is more important than their own happiness so what they really want as sentient beings to be happy but what do we do we create the cause of suffering thinking that it's going to bring us happiness so we just give the Buddhist and Bodhisattvas so many headaches you know here they are teaching us you know keep the five precepts it's good for you really it'll bring you happiness and we go but you don't understand, Buddha. If I don't lie, I'm not going to get what I want. And this person is going to take advantage of me. So lying going to bring me happy, happiness. You really need to understand that, Buddha. <laughs> That's kind of how we are, isn't it? In our confusion. Okay, so you really... See, you know, kind of how we need to train our mind to become like the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. And the kind of fortitude and perseverance they have that we also need to train our mind in to gain their qualities. Then Verse 52 says, As for me... I try to transfer or infect others with all of my suffering and loss. And whatever excellences others may have, I covet them for myself. Okay, so these two verses, let me read them. There's so much in contradistinction. Okay, so the first one. Hence you are everywhere, both in the realm of samsara and nirvana, carrying all embodied creatures from the troubles out of which they have not yet been led, to the excellence with uh, which they have yet to find as for me i try to transfer or infect others with all of my suffering and loss and whatever excellences others may have i covet them for myself there's a difference isn't there <laughs> yeah which one describes you more <laughs>
1: verse 51 or verse 52
0: <laughs> okay so verse 52 to, to 54 they're talking about um, the practice of equalizing and exchanging self and others okay And so here, you know, in that practice, it's pointing out um, very, very vividly the disadvantages of selfishness, the disadvantages of self-centeredness, of self-preoccupation. Okay? So this is is something that's very important to, to recognize and to recognize in the proper way. So that when the teachings point out to us our self-centeredness, our self-preoccupation, we don't thereafter feel guilty for being selfish and beat up on ourselves, saying, I'm so bad because I'm so selfish. Okay? That is not helpful at all. Okay. So to sit there and feel guilty about being selfish, to sit there and tell ourselves that we're useless and worthless because we're so selfish, this is not the point of the meditation on the disadvantages of self-centeredness. Okay? Because what good do, does guilt do? What good does beating up on ourselves and trashing ourselves do. That actually is just more self-centeredness. Isn't it? You know? I'm so terrible. I'm so awful. I'm so selfish. No wonder nobody likes me. Me, me, me. I'm so bad. I'm so bad. I'm so useless. I'm so unlovable. I can't do anything right. That's just more me, 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 me. Again and again. Okay? So, seeing our self-centeredness and reacting with that kind of self-criticism is not helpful at all. That's not what this this verse is trying to get us to do. Okay? But rather, and this takes some practice, to see that okay, the self, the I, the conventionally existent person that is just labeled independence on the aggregates no solid existence okay that person is different than the self-centered attitude okay now often we feel like we and our self-centered attitude are union oneness inseparable and do you remember all those debates in high school about our human beings inherently selfish mm-hmm. yeah we all said well, some people said yes, some people said no. But, you know, there's a, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, we're inherently selfish. And look, Darwin proved it. Survival of the fittest. We all care about our own genes. As if we're sitting there thinking about, oh, my genes are so precious, I've got to get them in the gene pool. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, but... Uh that, you know we kind of use Darwin to say oh yeah it's so natural to be self-centered it's hardwired in our genes we're inherently selfish there's nothing we can do about it so don't even feel guilty about it just be selfish just be hedonistic it's genes you can't control it anyway blame your parents if you're unhappy
1: <laughs>
0: okay um so some people take that attitude, you know, just very hedonistic attitude, you know. This is the way we're hardwired, nothing to do about it. So they don't try and control their selfishness. Other people go into the, you know, self-flagellation. Oh, I'm so bad, I'm so selfish, nobody can trust me, I'm always thinking to myself, wham, wham, okay. That also, useless, stupid. Okay? So what we have to do is see that the self-centeredness is just one attitude. Okay, It's one aspect of the ego mind. It is not who we are. And this self-centeredness is not based on good evidence. Okay? The self-centeredness has its, all of its logic and reasoning, why it is supreme and so important. But when we challenge the logic and reasoning of that self-centeredness, it completely falls apart. Okay. So then we see that the self-centeredness is based on faulty premise, and it's something that can be eliminated. It is not who we are. So then when we see, you know, the defects of self-centeredness and how much self-centeredness has tormented us and caused us problems, then we look at the self-centered attitude, we put it out there, we look at it out there, and we say, you're the source of my problems. So I'm going to destroy you because until now you've been destroying me. So instead of identifying with our selfish mind, we put it out there, we point the finger at it, and we say, you're the source of my problem. So we're not blaming ourselves, we're not feeling guilty. We're separating ourselves out from the selfish mind, pointing the finger at it for being the cause of our problems. But self-centeredness... It's not going to just roll over and say, yeah, you're right. I'm the source of all your problems. I give up. Self centeredness is very shrewd. It is very shrewd. Okay. It comes back and says, but you need me. And you know you need me. Because if I don't take care of you, nobody's going to take care of you. Yeah. You've got to be selfish. Because, you know, I self centeredness, I'm the one who's going to take care of you. Because if I don't take care of you, all those other sentient beings, they're awful. See, they've already betrayed your trust. They criticize you, they trash you. Don't trust them. Trust me. Self centeredness is a big show, you know? And it can be very convincing sometimes. Very, very convincing. And since we've been we've been under the tutelage of self-centeredness since beginningless time, it's a little shaky to kind of point the finger at it, yeah. Especially when it's saying, "You don't understand. I'm trying to make you happy. Just follow me. You know, follow your self-centeredness." Go buy yourself a present. (laughs) The credit card debt doesn't matter. Buy yourself a present. You deserve it. It'll make you happy. Go tell that person off. He's been backbiting for so long. Doesn't matter that you did something to bring it on. Go tell him off. So self-centeredness gives us all this kind of advice. Yeah. And we listen to it. Yeah. So this is what gets us into trouble. Yeah. Because self-centeredness pretends so hard to be looking out for us. But meanwhile, what happens when we follow its advice? What happens when we go tell that other person off? it often winds up to be a bigger conflict. Okay? What happens when we go by ourselves a present? Well, we get into credit card debt. When self-centeredness tells us to break our precepts, oh, self-centeredness says, you're at a party. If you don't drink, everybody's going to think you're so prudish. They'll have a bad view of Buddhism. You don't want them to have that, do you? So you better drink. Then it's t- anyway. It's just a little bit. You'll relax. Nobody will think you're weird for drinking grape juice. They'll think Buddhism is good because it lets you drink. Yeah. So setting. Oh yeah, self centeredness, very good. That sounds quite quite good. I think I'll go have a drink or two or three or maybe a few more than that. Okay? So this is this is what self centeredness does. Okay. So that's why we have to be very, very careful of it. Because, you know, if we get down to the To the bottom of it. What does self-centered do? Self-centeredness do? As for me, I try to transfer. I here meaning self-centeredness. Self-centeredness tries to transfer or infect others with all of my suffering and loss. And whatever excellence others may have, I covet them for myself. Okay. So whenever there's a problem, I practice giving and taking. You take the problem. <laughs> Whenever there's some good circumstance, some excellence, since I'm practicing giving and taking, I'll take it. Okay. That's what self centeredness says. And that's what we do. Okay. I don't feel like dry- drying the dishes. I don't feel like washing the dishes. I feel like doing something else. Oh, yeah. I'll do something else. No problem nobody will miss me it will adversely affect somebody else if I don't show up for my chores anyway they're all practicing compassion <laughs> <Sure>.
1: <laughs> all practicing me. they won't criticize me <laughs>
0: me, I'll just give him a dirty look and say haven't you been hearing what you've been saying?
1: <laughs> okay.
0: So I think that gives us enough for some meditation. <laughs> so we'll end here.